This week we are this week we're beginning a study in the Old Testament book of Jonah. And Herman Melville, the great American author in his great American novel, perhaps some think the greatest American novel, Moby Dick, through one of his characters he says this about the book of Jonah. He says Jonah is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures meaning it's not a very big book, just four chapters. But Melville says, yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? It's a small book that we're going to study for the next five weeks, but it is a deep book. And there are things within this book that teach us about ourselves, that teach us about the nature of God. It is at its core the story of the disobedience of man, but yet the faithfulness of God. And so while it's a story about Jonah, in many ways I hope you'll see that it's also a story about us. A story about you and a story about me. And we've got a lot of ground to cover and I really don't want to be here an hour, so I'm not going to offer a lengthy introduction. I'd rather just, as we begin the book of Jonah, I'd rather just dive right in. And that pun was fully intended, okay? (laughs) Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So two things we've got to ask right away. Who is Jonah? And where and what is Nineveh? Jonah is a prophet, which in Old Testament times, that's, that's a big deal, to be a prophet. And not only was he a prophet, he was a very well-known prophet. Because in 2 Kings chapter 14, we learn that Jonah once prophesied to the king of Israel, uh, saying that the, the northern border of the, country, of the nation was exposed. And God gave Jonah a vision for how to protect and strengthen the borders. And Jonah gives that to the king and says, here's how we should strengthen our northern border so that we're not attacked. And so the king listens to Jonah, listens to his prophecy and his counsel, and makes the necessary adjustments. And what happened is it ended up saving Israel from what would have been certain defeat. And as a result, it likely would have made Jonah extremely well known in the country. He would have been known as not only a prophet, but a prophet who saved the nation. He was a spiritual leader or a national hero, he would have been. And this story is not 2 Kings 14, but rather this is Jonah 1. And this story opens up with God giving Jonah a new word. But this time he's giving Jonah a task, a new mission, a new calling, a new command. And the command is to arise and to leave Israel and to go to Nineveh and call out against them. And Nineveh was the largest city in Assyria. And the Assyrians were the bitter enemies of the people of Israel. And so in the text, the the scripture here says that Nineveh was two things. said it was great and says they were evil. Nineveh was a great city because it was large. It was heavily populated. It was a place of culture, a place of influence, a place of power and architecture and art and politics and military prowess. This was a great city. But the Bible also says that it was an extremely wicked city. So when you think of Assyria, which are the bad guys, the Nineveh are like the bad guys of the bad guys. They're like the NWO wolf pack, okay, if you follow WCW. They were cruel, cruel.
cruel. There are, there are stories in ancient history of the Ninevites. And what they would do is when they would conquer, as there's stories in history of them conquering a city, and they would take all the women, they would rape them and then kill them. And then they would take their husbands, they would take the men, they would skin them alive. They would skin them alive and they would take their skins and they would hang them on the city walls like they were works of art. And while the men had been filleted, they weren't dead yet, they would then bury them in sand. You can imagine how painful that would be. And if they weren't dead after that, they would take their tongues, pull their tongues out from their mouth and drive a nail through their tongue and would leave them there with their tongues nailed to the ground for people to walk by and to spit on them and to mock them as they would die. There are stories of Ninevites where they would conquer cities and they would behead hundreds of their citizens and they would make a pile of the the severed heads and they would stand up and they would say, this is what happens when you dare to oppose the Assyrians. And God calls Jonah to go and be their pastor. Go tell them that they're wicked, Jonah. (laughs) Preach the gospel to them and love them and serve them. And so you can imagine that Jonah's like, To quote our camp speaker this week, nah, brah. That's what he said a lot. Our kids liked it. Jonah's like, I don't want to do that. That's not part of my 10-year plan. Like, that's not upward mobility. When When I prophesied in 2 Kings 14 and saved Israel, like, I thought that was like my high point, and I was just kind of coast the rest of the way. I didn't think this was part of my plan. This isn't what I was hoping for, God. But God says, arise, Jonah. Stand up. And go to Nineveh. And Jonah rejects the command of God. And blatantly rebels and disobeys the words of God. Verse 3, it says that Jonah rose up to flee from Tarshish. There to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it. To go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah gets on a boat to Tarshish. And it says it like eight times in that passage. And I felt like I was like mumbling over my words. The thing to know about Tarshish is that Tarshish isn't Nineveh. You guys get up here and try to say it 15 times. (laughs) The thing to know about this city, particularly is that it's not Nineveh. That's the point. In fact, it's 1,500 miles in the opposite direction. And, what, and it, the point is not that Jonah's going to Tarshish. The point is this. Verse 3 says that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, what? Quote, away from the presence of the Lord. And it actually says this twice. Away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's not going to this new city. Jonah's running from God is what he's doing. He fled as fast as he could. It says he goes down to Joppa and kind of the way it reads, it says he just found the first ship out of Joppa that he could find. One going in the opposite direction of Nineveh, going in the opposite direction of the the path of the way that God had called him. And there, you know, there's a number of reasons why Jonah refused to obey God's command that we can sort of consider. Perhaps he was scared. I mean, that would make sense. I mean, I would be scared. I wouldn't want to go to Nineveh if God called me there. In chapter 4, we also see that one of the reasons he didn't want to go is because he was kind of racist. Very racist, yeah. And we'll get to that. 
It could have been, I mean, you think, it could have been, he was a national hero in Israel, and it could have meant leaving Israel would have meant that he would lose his status as a local hero. And in fact, he knew that in Nineveh, not only would his success not mean anything to them, it would actually probably make him the enemy of the state. But regardless of the why, the point is this, Jonah heard the word of God, the commands of God, and actively chose to disobey. God told him the way to go, and Jonah actively said, I'm not going to do that. Jonah knew the will of God, and he even knew the character of God, but he chose to go his own way. And let me stop right here and just bring this story down to our lives. There is nothing more sad, and there is nothing more heartbreaking to the Spirit of Christ than when we know God's character, and when we know His commands, and when we know His will for our lives, yet we choose to go our own way. There's nothing sadder than that. And right now, I'm convinced that God is calling each of you in this room to something. I know He is. He's calling every one of you to something in your life. Whether He's calling you to greater generosity, whether He's calling you to greater purity, whether He's calling you to greater maturity or greater commitment. Perhaps even greater commitment to this church. For some of you, God may just be calling you to believe in Him to follow Him, to become a follower of His Son, Jesus. And you've got two options, essentially. You can rise up and run toward God's call on your life, or you can be a Jonah and run and flee from His will for your life. And this was the choice that Jonah was faced with. Rise up and go toward the way of God, or flee from the will of God. And and Jonah chose to run. And Jonah on the outside looked like a good and godly prophet. People would have looked at him as an example of faith and integrity. He probably even thought of himself that way. I mean, he looked like he was walking with God. He probably preached some really good sermons and led some Bible studies. But there was this one area of his life where he said no to the will of God in his life. And maybe this is you. You look good today. Everybody looks good. You walk into church, you're doing the right things, you put money in the offering plate, you you go to a growth group, you're a part of our church, you serve, maybe you're one of our many, probably 20 or so adults downstairs serving in our kids camp right now. You're doing all the right things, but perhaps you look like you're walking with God in every way, but there's one area of your life where you continually just continue to say no to the will of God in your life, to the commands of God, to the word of God in your life, whether it is a relationship that you know needs to end, but you continue to pursue it, or whether it's a financial sacrifice that God is asking you to make, or whether it's an addiction or a habit or a sin that you need to own and you need to bring into the open and you need to confess and repent of. There's an area in your life that you're saying no to because you know that it's costly. Because you know that confessing that sin might hurt your reputation. And leaving that relationship might mean loneliness. Or financial generosity might mean financial risk or uncertainty. So instead of you surrendering to the life that God wants for you, you keep running to Tarshish. But when God calls and commands, why are you not trusting that His character and His will for your life is better than whatever it is that you're afraid of in Nineveh? Why aren't you trusting God? Why am I not trusting God with these areas of my life? 
And for some of us, it's because we just aren't fully convinced that the way of Jesus is better than the way of Tarshish. Some of, just, some of us just aren't convinced that the way of Jesus is better than the way of our preferences. And you're not convinced that God is merciful, that he is gracious, and that he is slow to anger. And you're, and you're not convinced that whatever he calls you to do and whatever he calls you to believe is actually for his greater glory and for your greater good. And when you weigh the costs of obedience, you simply go, this would be obedience, this is going my own way, and you say, you know what, this just isn't worth it. I'm going to go my own way. Because you're not convinced that God is good. And in the book Moby Dick, there's a character named Father Mapple. He's the chaplain of the port. And he preaches a sermon in their chapel before Ishmael. Call me Ishmael, if you know the first words to Moby Dick. Um, Before Ishmael embarks on his journey at sea, he goes into the little chapel and Father Mapple gets up and preaches a sermon. And of course, he opens up the Bible to the book of Jonah. And he says, if we obey God, that means we must disobey ourselves. And it is in disobeying ourselves that wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. Father Mapple says to obey God means that you must first disobey your personal preferences and your desires. Jesus said it better and he said it like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if you are going to rise up to do what God is calling you to do, it requires a death to yourself. James, the apostle, uh, James, Jesus' brother James, said that we must not only be hearers of the word, like Jonah, he heard God's word, but we must be doers of the word. And if you confess Jesus as Lord, but yet you choose certain areas of your life that you keep from surrendering to the way of Jesus, then your faith, like Jonah's, is a contradiction. And you might be like bristling with me a little bit right now. You might be fighting with me a bit right now. And you say, well, I don't like the idea of surrendering all of my life to the lordship of Jesus. See, there's a growing tendency, especially among my generation of Christians, where people think that they can say, you know what? I like what the scriptures say about love and mercy. I'll take some of that. But what the scriptures say about heaven, I'll take some of that. That's good. But you know what the scripture says about sex or money? Or forgiving my enemies, you know, I'm just not going to go there. I'm not going to touch that. And when you select, when you turn your Jesus into a salad bar Jesus where you pick what you want and leave what you don't want, it's a contradiction. Because you have created a God in your image that never calls you, to, that never contradicts you. You've created a God that never calls you to anything greater than yourself, never asks you anything uncomfortable in your life. You've created a God in your own image. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, tells a story about a movie, The Stepford Wives. Some of you may have seen the original. I've seen the uh, remake with Nicole Kidman. And in the movie, The Stepford Wives, it's about a bunch of men who, through technology, have turned their wives into robots, basically. So their wives, they've, they've reprogrammed their minds so that their wives do what they want, when they want, They're fully compliant. They never talk back. They never question them. And so these husbands have these wives that do whatever they want from them. Fully compliant. They can't argue with them. They uh, they comply with them fully. And many of us want a Stepford God. 
We want a God that we can control. We want a God that is always compliant to our wishes, one that will not confront us in the areas of our lives like time and money and sex and relationships. We want a God sometimes that will never place a call on our lives or require us to die to ourselves. We want a God of our own making. But here's the problem with a step for God. You can't have a real meaningful relationship with someone who can never contradict you. That's why in the Stepford Wives, the relationships between these husbands and these robot wives weren't actually relationships. The wives were just a product for consumption. It wasn't somebody that was deserving of love. It wasn't someone who could reciprocate love. It wasn't. See, if you can't contradict someone, you can't, you can't have a relationship with someone. And Tim Keller says, Only if your God can say things that outrage you, as in a real friendship or marriage, only then will you know that you have a real God and not a God of your imagination. See, Jonah wanted a Stepford God. He wanted a God that would not ask anything of him that he didn't want to do. And Jonah says no to God's will. He says, I don't want to do that. Now I'm going to read the rest of the text. This is long. In fact, you know what, if you're able, will you stand with me for the reading of the word? It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down, down, down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come from upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is God's word. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And here's what I want you guys to see from the rest of the story. The first thing is the cost of sin. Or the cost of running from God. See, this text, the author uses... 
a word play that's very important that we pay attention to. When God told Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh, it says that Jonah went down to Joppa. Then it says he went down to Tarshish. And he gets on the ship, and then it says, verse 5, that he went down into the inner part of the ship. And then it says that he lies down and falls fast asleep. Down, 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 down. And what you see is the spiraling effects of disobedience to God. One move away from God, then another, then another, then another. Down, 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 asleep. And the Hebrew word for asleep is not like this word like nap. It's a deep sleep, a sleep of death. I mean, this is a total spiritual disaster. Jonah is so far now from where he started. He has drifted so much and it happened so fast. I remember when I was a child, my parents used to take us to the beach on vacation. And when I would go out into the water, I'd be swimming and I'd be having a good time. And my dad would say, we'll keep your eye on our hotel. We had the hotel right on the beach. He would say, we'll keep your eye on our hotel. Keep your eye on our umbrella and our stuff. Keep your eye on the hotel as a point of reference. Now, why would he say that? Because if you've ever been out in the ocean and you're not paying attention to where you are, you'll drift. And so I'm, you know, a 10, 11-year-old kid. I don't listen to my dad. I'm out there playing. And my dad watched me, but just for the sake of the story, just pretend, okay? And I'm out there, and I'm drifting. And I'm not paying attention to where the hotel is. I don't have a point of reference. And a half hour later, I look up, and I don't see my parents. I don't see the hotel. I don't know where I'm out because I've drifted a quarter mile down the beach. Because I did not keep my eyes fixed on the point of reference that I was called to keep my eyes fixed on. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to keep our eyes fixed on him, to keep our eyes fixed on his word, on his commands from the scriptures as our point of reference. And the reason we're called to do that is to protect us from drifting away from God. You take your eyes off of Jesus, you take your eyes off of his will for your life and his commands for you, and you will watch yourself drift from the presence and from the will of God. That's the progression of sin. This is why Jesus said, you've heard it said, he quotes the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, I say to you, do not look on another person with lust. And you hear that and you're like, that's kind of harsh, Jesus. Like that's an overstatement. Like adultery and like kind of just looking, like those are two different things. And you're right. But how many adulterous, Jesus knew what he was saying. How many adulterous relationships happen today because of a porn habit that started when someone was 14 years old, right? Disobedience in any area of your life today will lead to a drift that will have larger consequences down the road. It happened to Jonah and it will happen to us. How many violent outbursts of rage happen today because someone failed to control their temper and their anger and their bitterness when they were 14 years old on the football field? See, there are two consequences of sin that we all need to be aware of. The first is this. When we sin and run from God, you become less human. C.S. Lewis, in his classic novella, little novel, The Great Divorce, he talks about those, the characters in his novel that are running away from God. He says the further they run from God, the more invisible they become. They become see-through. And the point is that the further one runs from God, the more substance they lose. 
and the more invisible they become. But as people in this story move closer to God, they become more solid, they become more opaque, more colorful, more beautiful, more substantial. And Lewis's point is this, when we run away from God, we become less human. We become less of the person that God wants us to be and we experience a loss of our humanity. But when we move closer to God and obedience to His will, we become more human. We become alive. We become like God intended us to be. We become fully human. Jesus calls it the abundant life. And some of you, your selfishness, your fear, your insecurities, they are pulling you further and further away from God and you know it's making you less human. You're losing a part of yourself. You ignore the call of God on your life to be more generous, to be more faithful, to be more merciful. God's calls on your life to be sexually and morally and financially pure. Yet you choose to ignore God in these areas of your life and one or more of them. And what ends up happening is you diminish and you diminish and you diminish and you become less of the person that God intends for you to be. You become less human until you eventually sink. That's what happened to Jonah. Jonah ran from the conviction of God down, 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 down until he found himself in the sea drowning. And some of you, you know this, men. Some of you, your pornography addiction is causing you tremendous pain. And you know it gives so much shame and pain and you know it and you feel so much shame and you medicate your shame with more pornography. And the spiral goes down and down and down and it's killing you. Because when you objectify another human being, you lose a part of your humanity. Others of you, your reliance on alcohol or drugs or sex or overeating or comparing yourself to others or shopping or workaholism or religion. Trying to make yourself presentable God. Trying to look fancy for everybody in the church. Some of you, your reliance on these things, you pursue these things and they never satisfy, so you medicate yourself with more of it. And the things that drive you into deeper and deeper descent, you keep latching onto. You spiral down, 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 and down. The Proverbs say that sometimes we are unwise. We are like a dog that continually goes back to eat our own vomit. So your disobedience to God in whatever area it is in your life, it's affecting your humanity. It's affecting your joy. And you know this is true. You may think I'm being harsh right now, but you know this is true. This is why one of the ministries in our church that is thriving right now is our Celebrate Recovery ministry. It's where people can go, you know what? I'm not okay in this area of my life. I've got this habit. I've got this addiction. I've got this um, just besetting sin that I'm sick of. It's killing me. It's bringing me so much shame. And I want to enter into the body of Christ and let, as a community, help me get out of this sin. You know your sin is killing you. And you want your life back. Our sin... It causes us to be less human, but another thing about our sin, another cost of our sin is that it hurts others. See, when you run from God's call on your life like Jonah, it's not only you that gets hurt. You hurt the people around you. Your sin has residual effects. Think about these sailors in the boats who had to throw their possessions overboard. They were freaking out for their lives. And you think your sin only affects you, but your sin never just affects you. There are always other people left in the wreckage of your disobedience. Always. Parents, your anger, your bitterness, your materialism, your constant comparison to other families, 
your lack of commitment to Christ and to the way of Jesus, it affects your kids. You are shaping your kids into your image. Single people, the financial habits that you are forming today, the sexual experiences that you are accumulating today, they don't just affect you. They're affecting your future spouse. My little brother is here today, and he's almost a decade younger than me. He's like eight years younger than me. And I remember when I was in college, my mom called me one night, and she was telling me, at the time I was 18, 19, she was telling me about my 10-year-old brother. And she said, Will, you wouldn't believe it. He goes running after school every day. I was a runner. That's what I did. And she said, Will, you wouldn't believe it. He is dressing like you. Will, you wouldn't believe it. He wants to take guitar lessons, which is what I did. He, he, he's trying to be like you. And at the time, I was a rebellious college student, far from God, pursuing things that were making me less human. I was running from God like Jonah, and I thought it was only affecting me. I'm just in college. I'm just doing the college thing. Let me, let me just do this. not hurting anybody else, I thought. But this phone call from my mother showed me that there was a 10-year-old kid that was watching everything I was doing. And back then, he thought I was cool. I don't know what he thinks now. <laughs> now I think he's pretty cool. But he was growing into the image of his big brother. And this is super cheesy. There was an old country song where the guy was talking about how the impact he was having on his kid and how he wanted. And he said, I started reading my Bible and the chorus went like this. I want to be just like him because he wants to be just like me. <laughs> but that, I mean, that thought came into my mind. Here I am, a rebellious college student, pursuing the things that are not of God, and yet here's a 10-year-old kid that's watching every move I make. And after that call with my mom, I hit the floor and I wept over my sin for the first time in years because I realized that my sin was not isolated, that it affected other people. And I cried out to God and I asked Him to change me and transform me. And God was faithful in that moment to forgive me and save me and begin the process of transforming my life. See, your sin doesn't only affect you, it affects others. And i got to get going because I'm a little behind. But the second thing we see from this passage is the pursuit of God. There's a cost to sin, yes. But what makes this story so beautiful is not Jonah's pursuit away from God, but rather God's pursuit of Jonah. See, God doesn't let Jonah go to Tarshish. God doesn't let Jonah flee from Nineveh. He pursues him. He draws him back to the call that he has on Jonah's life. See, God loved Jonah too much to let his rebellion continue to spiral out of control. And God loved Nineveh too much to keep Jonah from going there to preach the good news of the gospel. And how does God bring Jonah back? He sends a storm. Eric Mason calls this a divine interruption. Oftentimes we think the storms in our lives are God punishing us. This is what Jonah thought. You see, when the sailors realized that the storm was coming from Jonah's God on, because Jonah was fleeing God, they asked Jonah, they said, look, we know it's because you're disobeying your God. What do we need to do to get your God to stop this? If you, listen to what, if you read what Jonah says, Jonah says, why don't you just kill me? Why don't you just throw me overboard? See, Jonah was thinking to himself that God, the storm was God's punishment on him. And he was thinking, God's through with me. God is so angry with me, there's no second chance for me. So he tells these sailors, just kill me. God must want my destruction, so just end me, throw me overboard. 
But at this point in the story, God still doesn't, or Jonah still doesn't understand God's heart. And God's heart is that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not want, he doesn't want, he wants Jonah's repentance is what he wants. He wants Jonah's obedience, not his destruction. And some of you, you're facing a storm in your life right now and it feels, you think like God is punishing you. And you may interpret it as God being finished with you, but could it be that God is pursuing you and wooing you back to him? God sent a storm not to destroy Jonah, but to wake him up from his apathy, from his rebellion. And some of you here, you don't feel like, who, like, you, don't feel like you are who you are supposed to be. And that feeling of discomfort, that stormy feeling every night when you lay your head on your pillow and you get that sense that you're diminishing, that sense that you're falling apart, that sense that you're not fully alive to who you want to be and who God wants you to be. It feels like a storm is encompassing you, but could it be that that is God's mercy on you to draw you out and call you out from your rebellion and your pursuit away from Him and to draw you back to Him? God used a storm to draw Jonah back to the will that he had for his life. And then a final thing we see is the redemption of God in this story. Can anything good come out of our disobedience? Can anything good come out of our running or our past sin or our failures? See, the most amazing thing about this chapter in the story, and there's much more to the story, but in this chapter, one of the most fascinating things is that it's through Jonah's disobedience and his running that the sailors on the boat came to know Jonah's God. See, if you notice, early on in the text, they're talking about their God, little g God. But in the Old Testament, in your Bible, it probably says, in the Old Testament, when Lord is spelled with all caps, that means it's referring to the word Lord Yahweh, which is the God of Israel, the God of Jonah, the God of Abraham, Isaac. That's the Christian God. And so when you see Lord without the all caps, it's referring to just the idea of God. But when you see Lord all caps, it means Yahweh. And what you see early on in this passage is the sailors referring to lowercase Lord. And by the end, they are making sacrifices and vows to L-O-R-D, capital Yahweh, Jonah's God. They came to a knowledge of the God of the universe because of Jonah's rebellion. See, God took Jonah's failure and used it and redeemed it for his purposes. And God often rescues us from our failures and uses our failures to rescue others. He often uses the experiences we experience today to speak into the experiences of others in the future. Or often he uses the tears that you cry today to qualify you to wipe the tears of someone else tomorrow. I think of Charles Colson, who went to prison because he was one of the people in Nixon's uh, Watergate scandal that went to prison during all that. And Charles Colson went to prison. While he was in prison, he, someone shared Christ with him and he became a follower of Jesus. But also while he was in prison, he became awakened to the injustices of the prison system. And when he got out of prison... He started prison fellowship and ministered to prisoners, a ministry that has blown up and is ministering to prisoners all over the country and is working on the front lines for prison reform. I think of Annie Lobert. Many of you may have heard her story. She was a high-end prostitute who slept with celebrities and politicians, and she was a high-end call girl. But God sent a storm into her life 
that caused her to recognize who Jesus was and she surrendered her life to Jesus. And now she uses her experiences from that past life to now rescue women caught in sex trafficking and in addictions. I think of the Apostle Paul. He was a murderer. And God turned him into a missionary. Think of John Newton who was a slave trader. God turned him into an abolitionist. And when he looked back on his life and thought that I was once someone who bought and sold humans for a living. But God forgave me and helped me be one of the ones who worked for the abolition of the slave trade. That's when he wrote a song called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God changed John Newton's life. I think of Ryan Stockton here in our church who because of past sin habits in his life that plagued him for a season of his life, he just said, I've had enough. And he sought redemption. He sought restoration. And through the body of Christ, helping him work through his issues, he now has a heart to lead our Celebrate Recovery ministry where many people in our church could point to Ryan and say that his impact on their life has helped them rise up out of the sin in their lives. God has used Ryan's past sins to lead people in our church out of their current sins. It's a beautiful thing. And you may be running from God in an area of your life today. There may be an area where he doesn't get your obedience. He doesn't get all of you. He doesn't get your trust. But the message of the gospel is that you're not finished. Your story's not over. And that even if you wanted to run away from God, you couldn't even if you tried. The scriptures tell us that God looked down into humanity. This is what the scriptures tell us, that God once looked down into humanity and saw us, His creatures, the ones whom He created in His image. We sinned and we rebelled from Him and all of us were like sheep, gone astray. We were like sheep without a shepherd. We were walking in our sin. And He looked down and He saw us and He saw us in our rebellion and He says, I can't let that go on. I love them too much. And so he became like us. He became a man. The scriptures say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to earth so that he could rescue us. Listen, while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his own love for us and died for us. While Jonah was still running from God, God still pursued him. And what we're going to see as we, read, as we study this story for the next several weeks is we're going to find that God was still writing Jonah's story. And so instead of fighting God's will for your life today, fighting His desire for your life, would you stop resisting Him? Would you trust Him? Would you walk in the way that He has for you? Let's pray.